Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is funded by you, not by the weapons manufacturers when we cover war or gun violence, not by the oil, gas, coal or nuclear companies when we cover the climate catastrophe. If you believe in the power of independent media, please make your donation today of $5 or $10 or $5 or $10 a month or any amount at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference, especially because generous donors are matching your contribution dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Israeli security forces started having competitions around who could take the most pictures of a Palestinian to run through the database and see if they could find a match. And it's been referred to as Facebook for Palestinians. That's profoundly dehumanizing to be treated as if you're part of a video game. Automated apartheid. We'll talk to Amnesty International about how Israel is using an experimental facial recognition program called Red Wolf to track Palestinians across the occupied territories, then to Afghanistan. It is difficult to overestimate the gravity of the situation in Afghanistan. It is the largest humanitarian crisis in the world today. We'll speak to an Afghan women's rights activist who served in the Afghan parliament, as well as a Greek refugee advocate who's trying to help 82 Afghan families, including a group of Afghan women parliamentarians who've been stuck in Greece for the past 19 months. Then, in a victory for free speech, Greenpeace USA has defeated a $100 million slap lawsuit by a Canadian logging company that threatened the future of Greenpeace. While our window to fight the climate crisis continues to shrink, we have to fight these suits head on because the voices of those who protect our planet and our communities cannot be silenced. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Ukraine says Russian artillery fire killed at least 23 people and wounded dozens of others in the southern Kherson region Wednesday. The killings were part of a wave of Russian attacks across Ukraine overnight that came after officials in Moscow accused Ukraine of attempting a drone strike on the Kremlin aimed at assassinating, they said, Russian President Vladimir Putin. That's a charge Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky denied while speaking Wednesday from Helsinki. We don't attack Putin or Moscow. We fight on, on our territory. We are defending our villages and cities. Zelensky spoke today from the Netherlands during a surprise trip to The Hague, where he called for the creation of a war crimes tribunal in Russia's invasion that would be separate from the International Criminal Court. Ukraine is not a party to the Rome Statute, which established the International Criminal Court. Neither are Russia or the United States. Israeli forces have killed three Palestinians during a raid in the occupied West Bank city of Nablus. Hamas confirmed the three men belonged to their group, which governs the besieged Gaza Strip. Israel said they were responsible for a fatal April shooting in Jericho, which killed two settler sisters. A general strike has been called in Nablus in response to the attack. 
In Rwanda, at least 136 people are dead and thousands have been left homeless after torrential rains brought flash flooding and landslides to several parts of Rwanda. This is flood survivor Claire Uineza, whose home in western Rwanda was destroyed. As you can see, I am left with nothing, no bed and no household. I came here for a job. I am safe, but all my belongings are gone. Rwanda's meteorology agency has linked higher than average rainfall than seen in recent years to global heating caused by human activity. Egyptian authorities have freed Al Jazeera journalist Hishan Abdelaziz four years after he was arrested and accused of belonging to a terrorist group. Al Jazeera called the allegations baseless and said authorities targeted Abdelaziz over the network's reporting, which has been critical of Egypt's U.S.-backed authoritarian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who took power in a 2013 coup. Tens of thousands of people have since been arrested in a crackdown and dissent. Among them are two other Al Jazeera journalists, Bahaudin Ibrahim and Rabi al-Sheikh. Protesters have confronted Secretary of State Antony Blinken over the Biden administration's persecution of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange and for failing to condemn the killing of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, who was killed by an Israeli military sniper last year while reporting from the occupied West Bank. Wednesday's protest was led by Code Pink's Medea Benjamin, who interrupted Washington Post columnist David Ignatius as he interviewed Blinken in a forum marking World Press Freedom. Day. Excuse us, we can't use this day without calling for the freedom of Julian Assange. The Biden... At this point, the live stream went silent as Medea Benjamin hooked her leg around Lincoln's chair while security pulled her off the stage. Take it easy, take it easy, take it easy, guys. Not one word about journalist Shereen Abu who was We're here to celebrate freedom of expression, and we just experienced it. Reporters Without Borders warns 2023 is among the worst years on record for journalists worldwide, with seven media workers killed since January 1st and 563 detained or in prison. The Federal Reserve has voted to raise interest rates for the 10th consecutive time. Fed Chair Jerome Powell announced the latest increase Wednesday, which brings the benchmark interest rate to a 16-year high of more than 5 percent. Reducing inflation is likely to require a period of below-trend growth and some softening of labor market conditions. Labor organizations blasted the Fed's move, saying it will drive unemployment higher and further risk plunging the economy into recession. Massachusetts Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren accused Powell of, quote, aiming to put people out of work. Authorities in Texas have arrested the wife of the suspect in last week's mass shooting, which killed five people in the town of Cleveland, Texas, including a nine-year-old boy. Dimamara Nava is accused of helping her husband, Francisco Orpesa, as he evaded capture for four days during a statewide manhunt. Last year, she asked a judge for a restraining order against Orpesa after reporting he was drunk and had physically assaulted her. A 2021 study found more than two-thirds of mass shootings are perpetrated by people with a history of domestic violence. In Georgia, police have arrested a 24-year-old suspect accused of opening fire inside an Atlanta medical office building on Wednesday, killing one person and injuring four others. The mass shooting prompted road closures and evacuations and led several schools to lockdown during an hours-long manhunt. Georgia Democratic Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock responded to the news from the Senate floor, demanding Congress pass new legislation to prevent gun violence. We're not safe in our schools. 
We're not safe in our workplaces. We're not safe at the grocery store. We're not safe at movie theaters. We're not safe at spas. We're not safe in our houses of worship. There is no sanctuary in the sanctuary. We're not safe at concerts. We're not safe at banks. We're not safe at parades. We're not safe in our own yards and in our own homes. And now today we can add medical facilities to that list. Oklahoma's Republican Attorney General Gettner Drummond filed a motion with the U.S. Supreme Court Monday to stay the execution of Richard Glossop. Glossop is scheduled to be executed May 18th for a 1997 murder for hire, despite major issues with the trial that resulted in his conviction. Glossop has always maintained his innocence for the past quarter century. To see our coverage of the case, go to democracynow.org. Montana's Republican governor signed several bills severely curtailing the right to abortion. One bill directly conflicts with a 1999 Montana Supreme Court ruling that the state constitution's privacy clause guarantees the right to an abortion. Other legislation would require abortion providers to track more paperwork and requires pregnant people to submit to an ultrasound before getting an abortion. Planned Parenthood of Montana President Martha Fuller said in response, quote, by adding unnecessary and burdensome red tape to a safe and legal medical procedure, these politicians have made it clear that it was never about our health and safety. It was always about undermining our personal freedom and shaming people who seek abortions, she said. In Tallahassee, Florida, police arrested 14 protesters who staged a peaceful sit-in Wednesday inside the office of Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. Florida's Dream Defenders organized the action to protest new legislation banning abortion after six weeks, denying gender-affirming care for youth, rolling back rent control, banning discussions of LGBTQ issues in the schools, and cracking down on immigrants and unions. Dream Defenders co-founder Nyla Summers said protests would continue until DeSantis agrees to a meeting. So we're going to sit here until Ron DeSantis deigns to come back to his office to meet with the people of Florida who have been directly affected by his nonsense and his hate and his pandering and his petty BS. The New York Times is reporting a text message sent by former Fox host Tucker Carlson containing violent and racist content is, well, helped ultimately to lead to his firing by the far-right network. In a text message to a Fox producer revealed as part of the Dominion defamation suit against Fox, Carlson describes his thoughts while watching a video of at least three Trump supporters violently beating, quote, an Antifa kid, unquote. It reads in part, jumping a guy like that is dishonorable, obviously. It's not how how white men fight. Yet suddenly I found myself rooting for the mob against the man, hoping they'd hit him harder, kill him, Tucker wrote. Fox fired Tucker Carlson just days after it settled with Dominion Voting Systems for $787.5 million for promoting Trump's lies about election fraud. Fox was not required to apologize to its viewers or to Dominion as part of the deal. Carlson and other Fox hosts have for years attacked people of color, immigrants, and the LGBTQ community on air. 
Donald Trump's legal team says they will not put on a defense case in his rape and defamation trial brought by writer E. Jean Carroll. Carroll has accused Trump of raping her in the dressing room of Bergdorf Goodman department store in the 90s, then accusing her of lying about it. Earlier this week, Jessica Leeds testified Trump repeatedly groped her during a flight in the 1970s. Journalist Natasha Stoinoff also took the stand and recounted how Trump allegedly attacked her and forcibly kissed her during a 2005 photo shoot and interview at Mar-a-Lago. The jury is expected to begin deliberating next Tuesday. Meanwhile, a judge dismissed Trump's lawsuit against The New York Times Wednesday, asserting the newspaper's 2018 reporting on his finances, including the gathering of his tax records, is protected by the First Amendment. The Wall Street Journal has obtained a trove of personal documents of convicted sexual predator and child sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein, including his schedules from 2013 to 2017. It shows he met with a number of prominent figures following his 2008 Florida conviction for procuring a child for prostitution. The list includes now CIA Director William Burns, former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak, filmmaker Woody Allen, former Treasury Secretary and Harvard President Lawrence Summers, and the famed linguist Noam Chomsky. Chomsky confirmed to the Harvard Crimson that he knew Epstein, writing in an email to the paper, quote, like all of those in Cambridge who met and knew him, we knew that he had been convicted and served his time, which means that he reenters society under prevailing norms, unquote. Chomsky also wrote Wrote, quote, I've met all sorts of people, including major war criminals. I don't regret having met any of them, he said. Epstein was arrested again in 2019 after the Miami Herald revealed he'd sexually assaulted and trafficked women and girls for decades. He died of apparent suicide in his New York jail cell in 2019. And protesters and mourners gathered on a subway platform in Lower Manhattan Wednesday, calling for justice for Jordan Neely, a 30-year-old unhoused subway rider and black man who was choked to death Monday while he was suffering an apparent mental health crisis. Neely was a busker well-known for his impersonations of Michael Jackson. He was reportedly yelling and complaining of hunger and thirst, but had not physically attacked anyone before three other passengers tackled him on the floor of the train. An unnamed former Marine held Neely in a chokehold. His death has been ruled a homicide and likened to a lynching. This is a protester speaking yesterday from the Broadway Lafayette subway station. A lot of us are closer to homelessness than we are to being millionaires. So to see someone be treated like that as a homeless person is scary for people who are, un are unhoused, or scary for people who are, who are at risk of being homeless, whose rent is overdue, whose rent is being increased, whose shelter is the next step. So it's really, really scary in a city that is going through a housing crisis to see homeless people being murdered. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheikh. Nermeen, it's great to have you back. Thank you, Amy. Uh, good morning, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show looking at how the Israeli government is using an experimental facial recognition system to track Palestinians and control their movement. The findings are part of a new report by Amnesty International titled Automated Apartheid that reveals an ever-growing surveillance network of cameras in the occupied West Bank city of Hebron and East Jerusalem, two cities in the occupied territories where Israeli settlements are expanding within Palestinian areas. 
The high-resolution cameras are pointed at mosques, hospitals, schools, and into people's homes. In Hebron, a program called Red Wolf is used at military checkpoints to scan Palestinians' faces and add them to vast surveillance databases without their consent. This is a clip from a video accompanying the new amnesty report. Imagine you're a Palestinian person from a small village in the occupied territory. You've not registered at a checkpoint or been detained. You've not given your consent to the state. Now, let's say you go visit a sick family member in Hebron, so you pass through a checkpoint. A little yellow light flashes up on the guard screen, but you think nothing of it. But at that moment, that camera has taken a little picture of you and compared it to other images and databases. It hasn't recognized you, so it's taken a picture and fed you into a system without your consent. And this feeds into a giant system so that from now on, any checkpoint in the occupied Palestinian territories or in Israel know who you are. Scans against other biomarkers, other cameras, other databases, all at a massive scale without your consent. Now skip forward to the next time you pass by a checkpoint. You pass through the turnstile and a border guard you've never seen before on the other side says, hey Matt, how are you doing today? And you realize you're now in the system. You hope to God that that little light behind the screen doesn't for some reason beyond your control turn red. That is Red Wolf. When Palestinians are detained at checkpoints or elsewhere, their so-called biomarkers are added to the surveillance network. This is another clip from Automated Apartheid, featuring Ali Amalak, a researcher and advisor on artificial intelligence for Amnesty International. Israeli security forces started having competitions around who could take the most pictures of a Palestinian to run through the database and see if they could find a match. And it's been referred to as Facebook for Palestinians. So that's profoundly dehumanizing to be treated as if you're part of a video game. The new automated apartheid report follows Amnesty International's major report last year that laid out how Israel is subjecting Palestinians to the crime of apartheid under international law. This is Cambridge University professor Saul Dubow. There are undoubtedly compelling and very disturbing parallels between the situations under apartheid South Africa and in Israel-Palestine. But I think the differences are also important. The system, oppressive as it was, was never fully operational. And certainly that the sort of high technology claims or hopes of the apartheid government that a centralized bureau of proof could capture all useful information about blacks, that this simply couldn't, uh, that this simply was not sustainable using the technology of the time. However terrifying it would be if you arrested. This was paper copies. It was not Digital. By surviving into this period where digital capacity, artificial intelligence is so much more advanced, that gives the Israeli state far more control. The Israeli newspaper Haaretz published an editorial Wednesday in response to Amnesty International's report that read in part, quote, there is no other way to describe the system except as biometric apartheid. In the case of Palestinians, not only are they not asked for their consent, the data collection is done without their knowledge, Haaretz said. For more, we go to London. We're joined by Matt Mahmoudi, the lead researcher for Amnesty International's new report called Automated Apartheid, Facial Recognition Entrenches the Oppression of Palestinians. Matt, welcome to Democracy Now! Can you continue to lay out what you found? 
Thank you for having me. Absolutely. What we found is effectively a system of facial recognition, in particular in Hebron, that follows a slew of experimentation with facial recognition technologies against Palestinians, especially in H2, which is under the, the ruling of the civil administration, which is a, a subunit of, of the COGAT, really under military rule, so to say. And really what we're seeing here is how facial recognition experiments are being used against Palestinians under the auspices of protecting the some 850 Israeli settlers that are illegally present in the area, such that Palestinians who previously relied on, for example, knowing a soldier when they're passing by a checkpoint, now have to rely on an algorithm that has collected their biometrics without their knowledge and consent, being able to recognize them. And should it not recognize them, they're suddenly finding themselves in a conundrum in which they might be held back at the checkpoint. Um, a soldier will ask to match their ID to a facial capture that has already been taken such that they can continue to teach the facial recognition algorithm to recognize them in future. In East Jerusalem, we see similar trends in which really surveillance begets illegal settler activity and illegal settler activity begets surveillance. We're seeing how surveillance has been increasing following the crackdowns on the protests that, that came as a result of the evictions of seven Palestinian families from Sheikh Jarrah in 2021. Here we've seen in Sheikh Jarrah in particular, as well as by Damascus Gate, as well as in Salwan, areas that are of profound significance to Palestinian communities, that surveillance has been ramping, ramping up as illegal settler activity has also been ramping up. And we're seeing this as a part of a coercive environment that is meant to force Palestinians out of areas of strategic interest to Israeli authorities. And that is why we're saying that effectively facial recognition is augmenting, reinforcing, entrenching aspects of apartheid, such as the aspect that speaks to restrictions on freedom of movement, which is the basic right that Palestinians need to have in order to be able to access things such as, you know, housing, education, work, etc., medical care, as well as the coercive environment component, which, which is instilling a chilling effect on Palestinians and stopping them from being able to, to resist and introducing a further calculus, making it more dangerous to do so. Matt, could you explain uh, when this surveillance technology was put into use in the occupied territories and whether there's any indication that uh, Israel plans to expand the use of this technology? Well, to speak of the two systems in particular that we had under investigations, which is to say the Mabat 2000 system, which is a networked surveillance system that's used in East Jerusalem, and the Red Wolf system, we can speak to, for example, how the Mabat 2000 system was actually put in place at the turn of the millennium. But only in 2017 and 2018, further investment by Israeli police meant that the system was now capable of facial recognition. We initially started with some 400 cameras that were networked to then now thousands of cameras that are able to, to connect with one another and perform facial recognition on Palestinians who at times we've seen are pulled out of crowds and identified simply for participating in protest. We've also seen in, in places like H2 and Hebron um, the rampant use of facial recognition experiments. Of course, surveillance has been has been part and parcel of the experience in Hebron since the initial division in 19, 1997 uh, between H1 and the H2 areas of, of Hebron. But since 2015 in particular, there has been surveillance cameras placed virtually everywhere in, 
streets in H2. In 2021, we started hearing about reports of an app called Blue Wolf being used against Palestinians in Hebron, where effectively soldiers were raiding homes, uh, picking on Palestinians on the streets, and registering their faces into this database that contained further information on Palestinians in an effort to automate the process of being able to identify them in future on the streets. The app Blue Wolf incentivizes military units for being able to capture as many faces as possible and makes it nearly inescapable for Palestinians to to come across surveillance. Now, Red Wolf is just the latest uh, in a slew of these tools that have been used on Palestinians. And we believe there's a high risk of the tool plugging into the database that's already been curated by Blue Wolf, such that information might be presented to a soldier at a checkpoint that really a Palestinian passing through may have no idea exists on them in the first place. And Matt, could you uh, uh, tell us a little about where this technology comes from? Uh, uh, The U.S. is reportedly the second largest exporter of surveillance technology, in particular face recognition technology, and China is the number one exporter. What did you find about the origins of this uh, uh, technology? While we know that the Mabat 2000 system and the Red Wolf system don't have an explicit origin in terms of developer as far as the software is concerned, we know about some of the companies that are supplying the cameras, the CCTV cameras, that are plugging into the Mabat 2000 system in in places like East Jerusalem. So there's been a number of reporting um, done by various partner organizations of ours leading up to this moment, but we found in our report that in particular, Hike Vision, the Chinese surveillance manufacturer, as well as TKH Security, which is a Dutch-owned um, surveillance manufacturer, are particularly present in East Jerusalem. Hike Vision cameras especially seem to be increasing over the last two years alone in tandem with illegal settler activities in Silwan. And I want to point out here that in Silwan, we are seeing uh, biblical excavation projects in the city of David sites. Uh, followed by uh, settler activity, which is taking over demolished Palestinian homes and unhousing them, and then inserting surveillance in the areas to further restrict Palestinians from resisting their illegal activity there. So their TKH security and high vision in particular are at risk of being complicit in international grave crimes unless they make explicit a plan for the removal of their products and make it clear what their human rights due diligence process as well as business relationships have been with Israeli security forces in the area. Matt Mahmoudi, can you talk about the effect this has on the right to freedom of expression, the right of assembly, um, when you have this kind of um, surveillance going on? It's important to note that Palestinians, of course, are still resisting the occupation. They're still resisting apartheid. But we've seen in places like Hebron, where Palestinian groups such as the Youth Against Settlements group have been effectively under house arrest with cameras outside turns against their home, making it very difficult for them to engage in their normal activities. In East Jerusalem, we're seeing Palestinians participating in protests, both following the crackdown on the Sheikh Jarrah evictions, as well as following the killing of Shirin Abu Akleh being pulled out of crowds 
and identified. This disincentivizes people and inserts a sort of environment of fear, which makes it very, very difficult, or at least very costly, for Palestinians to engage in protest and resistance. In Silwan, we had a number of reports from, te- from, from our witnesses and interviewees who spoke to the feeling that every time they have to cross the street, not even to participate in protest, but simply to go and grab coffee with someone, with a neighbor, with a family member, they have to think about where the surveillance camera were. They had to think about what risk they might be uh, incurring in order to participate in just aspects of normal social living. In Hebron, we had testimonies that spoke specifically to how this form of militarization and this form of surveillance has nearly killed all aspects of social life. Matt, could you talk about, you've also documented uh, the widespread use of a network of CCTV cameras. Could you talk about the links between the use of this facial recognition technology, how that works together uh, with this network of CCTV cameras, and also uh, the effect of now the quite quotidian use of facial recognition technology, uh, for example, uh, in smartphones, uh, uh, which, you know, is now uh, quite widespread. Absolutely. First of all, to speak to the network surveillance that we're seeing in East Jerusalem, as I say, the, the Mabat 2000 system was put into place in, in 2000 at the turn of the millennium, but it was only equipped with facial recognition technologies in 2017 and 2018. The way that it works is that any camera that is capable of capturing faces, so any high-resolution cameras, which would mean most cameras produced over the last 10 years that are capable of capturing uh, videos, um, would be able to plug into a software software-based system that sits on a computer which can effectively run facial recognition on those CCTV cameras, which is also why in our previous research with Amnesty, we've made it very clear that most cities are just one software upgrade away from being able to have ubiquitous facial recognition capabilities. East Jerusalem is no exception to this, except we're dealing with a context that is internationally recognized as an illegal annexation. And so you're dealing with a double-edged sword of both having the uh, technology that we see as being fundamentally incompatible with international human rights law, whilst also having it apply in a context that is fundamentally against international law, which is to say the context of apartheid and the context of the illegal annexation. As for the uh, quotidian nature of facial recognition technologies, it's important to note the differences between the systems that we're speaking about here. So facial recognition that you might find in your phone is what we call one-to-one facial recognition, which is a match that is made upon you having known and consented towards your face being captured and stored locally on your phone for later recognition, such that you can log into your system. You might also think of it as as what some call facial recognition for authorization. It, it, it is sometimes applied to buildings. You will walk into a space, you have already registered just your face to your profile, it will recognize you and allow you entry. For facial recognition for mass surveillance or facial recognition for identification, what we also call one-to-many facial recognition, we're dealing with a system that relies on curating a large-scale database without your knowledge and consent, usually scraping millions of images off of, for example, social media, or just in the context of Hebron, for example, through soldiers going around the streets and taking pictures from Palestinians without their knowledge and without their consent. And those then feed into this database that is then being used together with a facial recognition algorithm 
that determines who the people that are being displayed in particular CCTV footage are. Now, because these systems depend on this large-scale database, we consider them by design to be incompatible with the right to privacy because they are, by design, technologies of mass surveillance. What is the final recommendations of AI for AI? That's Amnesty International on artificial intelligence and what you call automated apartheid. We're calling for the immediate end to facial recognition technologies, for a ban on the sales, export, development, deployment of the technologies, and in particular, for companies that are providing tools that can be used for facial recognition to immediately seize the sales of those in the context of the occupied Palestinian territories. We also are calling on the state of Israel to dismantle its system of apartheid against Palestinians, and we believe that by stopping facial recognition, we're taking one step towards weakening apartheid. Matt Mahmoudi, we want to thank you very much for being with us. Lead researcher for Amnesty International's new report, Automated Apartheid, Facial Recognition Entrenches the Oppression of Palestinians. We'll link to the report and the 20-minute video that goes along with it. Next up, we speak to an Afghan women's rights activist who served in the Afghan parliament, as well as a Greek refugee advocate who's trying to help scores of Afghan families, including a group of Afghan women parliamentarians who've been stuck in Greece for more than a year and a half. Stay with us. by Tune Yards. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres is warning Afghanistan continues to face the largest humanitarian crisis in the world today. He made the comment earlier this week during a two-day U.N. summit on Afghanistan that was held in Doha. It is difficult to overestimate the gravity of the situation in Afghanistan. 
It is the largest humanitarian crisis in the world today. The current ban on Afghan women working for the United Nations and national and international NGOs is unacceptable and puts lives in jeopardy. The meeting in Doha ended without any formal recognition of the Taliban, which has ruled Afghanistan since August 2021. UN officials have repeatedly criticized the Taliban's intensifying crackdown on Afghan women and girls. A recent report by the U.N. Special Rapporteur on Afghanistan warns the Taliban has normalized systemic violence and human rights abuses against women and girls and says it may amount to gender persecution, a crime against humanity. This is U.N. Special Rapporteur Richard Bennett. The Taliban's intentional and calculated policy is to repudiate the human rights of women and girls and to erase them from public life. It may am amount uh, to the international crime of gender persecution, for which the authorities can be held accountable. The cumulative effect of the restrictions on women and girls has a devastating long-term long impact on the whole population, and it is tantamount to gender apartheid. We're joined now by two guests. Jumana Abuoksa is a project manager at the Greek refugee project, Alpita Home. She's in Washington, D.C. right now, where she's meeting with Biden administration officials and lawmakers in an effort to seek help for 82 families, including many women parliamentarians who evacuated from Afghanistan but have been stuck in Greece for over a year and a half. We're also joined by Farzana Kochai. She's an Afghan women's rights activist who served served as a member of the Afghan parliament. She's joining us from Winnipeg, Canada. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, Farzana, if you could start off by talking about this meeting in Doha. Um, were you invited uh, to the meeting? And what about the possible recognition of uh, the Taliban um, uh, consenting to legitimizing it? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, um, no, I was not invited. I haven't been part of this uh, recommendation or the, the, the meeting itself or any anything about it. But uh, um, about the recognition or um, trying to recognize the Taliban, everyone knows it's like a, a huge, uh, a huge mistake. Like no one wants to be part of that anyway. No way. No one wants. It's it's a huge mistake and it's a huge like abandon to women and human rights and everyone there in Afghanistan. But th despite Taliban, it's just on the good of Taliban. No, no one else. Uh, I haven't been part of that. But the, um, following the meeting, I I think it was uh, not to recognize and it um, haven't ended in a way that we should say it was to recognize the Taliban. But of course we. Uh, we need to talk about what's going on in, inside Afghanistan and to come together and find a way. And Farzana, uh, what do you think uh, uh, the risks are of uh, recognizing the Taliban government? I mean, this now there's not a government in the world that recognizes the uh, Taliban, whereas when they first came to power in 1996, uh, there were three countries, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, that did recognize uh, uh, the Taliban. What do you think uh, uh, the risks are? And, and do you see any possible benefits to recognizing the Taliban government in the sense of potentially releasing funds uh, and more assistance, uh, given the grave uh, humanitarian crisis there? 
um, everyone knows like uh, how it would be for the civilian, for the people, for for the nation inside the country, and for the progress of the things that that is going on inside the country when we do not have a recognized and legitimate government, which be, would would have diplomatic relations, which would have a responsibility toward the world and the the, the people inside Afghanistan, and would which would be committed to some responsibilities and some like commitment agreements outside inside Afghanistan. Of course, we know how important these things are. These are crucial things. But the risks, like what are the risks, as you asked, about the recognizing Taliban as a legitimate government? We all know where they came from. They killed Afghans and the allies for 20 years to take the power. Like, we know at least this should be enough to know how dangerous it could be for everyone to start a war, to kill the people for 20 years, millions of people, to, to, to destroy the country and then claim the power. It shouldn't be a normal way of getting the, to the power. Like, we cannot normalize this. And then how how responsible Taliban are for the, the values that we share in our current um, time, like the, the, the democracy, the human rights, women's rights, education, and common responsibility, terrorists, terrorism, uh, and uh, tr- um, drug trafficking, and other things that we are concerned about, especially the human rights and women's rights, and how people could have their civil rights, but uh, Taliban are not uh, providing people uh, the, the opportunity to practice their rights and their um, uh, what they have, the privilege that constitution can give them or did give them. So it's like the risks are huge. We while we know how 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 are we paying as a nation the Afghans and and how our country is being destroyed and stayed back from the development when we do not have a legitimate government. But we, we also think about, is this an option to legitimize the Taliban in a way that they came, in a way they practice, in a way they hold the power, in a way that they govern, in a way that they, they do the things inside Afghanistan? Like the risks are huge. Uh, for international community, for the region, and for the Afghan people. And it's a huge, like, a huge thing to be involved to recognizing a terrorist group who are killing, who is still killing the people, and who is, like, who do not believe on human rights and women's rights and democracy and freedom of speech and anything that we all, as as global um citizens as global nations as as um, part of international community we all agreed on and we believe those are our values and we we stay on those values and we fought for that and we are fighting for them but how to give up like the risks are clear can you talk about your own decision to leave Afghanistan when the Taliban first came to power in August uh, 2021? You'd said explicitly that you wanted to stay. Uh, what happened? You were a, a member of the National Assembly in Afghanistan. Are you still a member? What is your status now? Could you explain uh, uh, what happened and, and what made you leave? Um uh, when the Taliban came as a person who are in the in the power part of the power and and I could have like uh, encouraged people uh, motivate people to stay or to be brave and to uh, not give up and then I could have sent a message like 
that the life is ended inside Afghanistan and we all have to run. Uh, I did the, the, the first thing. I, 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 I stayed there and I, I was um, speaking about that so um, loud that I will stay and we, we need to stay. This is our country and we need each other. Like we can't all leave. It's not an option. F around 40 million people and half of them women, where we should go? At least some of them are educated and had jobs and occupations which they believe that they, they fought for that so, so hard. So I, I said I will stay. But the things like become in a way that the option of living an active life for women like me who are active and who are not willing to give up on everything and just be um, inside the walls and just sit in the house and, and then do nothing and not speak about things, how it's going on, how the life is, how things are good or bad in a way. So when, when this option was taken from me and I was warned again and again that this is not going to happen to you, that you stay inside Afghanistan and do whatever you do, like speaking to the media, part of it like could be an interview that we are just having this right now. It was like a huge crime inside Afghanistan while I was there. I was speaking to the, some national and international media at the moment and because of my past um, activities in my stand against the tourist groups, including the Taliban and extremism in the country and awareness and all the values that I was um, working for. So it was like two things that made me a person at high risk. And then I was taking the risk. I was willing to take the risk because everyone takes a risk when they are doing something good in a country like Afghanistan, in a war country, in a conflict zone. But the thing is like, when I was not able, and the result was, I was not able to give up on those things, that the values and the things that I believe it needs to be worked for, and it's um, it has its value thing and it's important, it's in, essential for our society, for ourselves, and we cannot give up and cannot choose another path or another way or to come together and just legitimize the Taliban and say Taliban are now good, Taliban have been changed, Taliban like things that are not true or good for anyone and it's not real things. So I couldn't do that, I couldn't lie, but I, I was not able to do the truth, like to say the truth and to speak up and be active or have a job or have a, any sort of connection to the media or the people who we were working on. And then um, Farzana, I would I, be like killed. Farzana, yeah. I know that the Taliban uh, disbanded the National Assembly. Do you consider yourself still a member of the Afghan parliament, even if it's been disbanded? I mean, it's not important if I'm a member of parliament or not. I, I ha, I'm, I've never been so much into the power. But, like, um, but the thing is, like, if I'm not accepting any other thing coming from the Taliban, why should I accept something about myself being a member of parliament or not? Like, uh, do the Taliban have law? Do they have any constitution? Do they have a parliament? Do they have anything? Do they have a legitimate, legitimate government? I can't. I, I I can't allow Taliban to decide about who am I. I I can't. 
I, I believe we are in exile. We are not a parallel or something. We are in exile. We don't have a government. We don't have a parliament inside Afghanistan. And I, I, I truly feel responsible for what I was doing to continue those work. Well, we're going to um, also talk to Jumana Abuaksa, who is project manager at the Greek Refugee Project, Alpita Home, now in Washington, D.C., um, trying to deal with the fact that you're representing, what, some 82 families, a number of um, women parliamentarians from Afghanistan who evacuated um, from Afghanistan, like Farzana, um, but have been stuck in Greece for over a year and a half. What is the issue, Jumana? Good morning, Amy, and thank you for the invite. Um, the, we have um, our fund, our organization, Elpida Home, has been founded by our founder, uh, Ahmed Khan, who's an American uh, philanthropist. And after the fall of Kabul in August uh, 21, he had evacuated over 1,000 uh, Afghans to different countries. Um, in Greece, we have received around 400 uh, people. Out of those, uh, we had 18 uh, uh, women parliament members of Afghanistan and their family members. 80% of those have already left. However, uh, the 20% uh, left is still uh, in Greece. Uh, we have different applications for different people, like we have applications to the U.S. There are four different applications to the U.S., and we have applications to Canada. Each application has its timeline. For Canada, it, which was the fastest application and which all, uh, most of the parliamentarians have for, the 20 percent, uh, according to Canadian uh, sources, it's under security screening. It's been more than 18 months that these people have been in Greece. We've been hosting them, providing them with all uh, the, with assistance on everything, medical, mental health, legal, uh, support in uh, finding jobs, trying to help the kids going to school, uh, different, different other services that we provide. However, their applications have been stuck. This is why I'm currently in D.C., and next week I will be in New York to try to have meetings and push for the expedite of the, uh, of the visas of the, of, our, of the families that we are hosting. Uh, I know that there's, uh, it's very important to do the security checks and the security screenings. However, these people are stranded. They are in limbo. There's nothing clear for them for how long they will stay. They're already stressed and depressed from becoming uh, refugees outside their countries. However, the stress of not knowing when and uh, if they will move on to their destination country is also making it worse. We're seeing a lot of uh, depression, self-harm, increased uh, problems within the families and stress. And we are trying to do our best in order to uh, make sure that these families move on to their final destination and resettle and start their families, their new lives there with their families. Jumana, we don't have very much time, but if you could say a little bit more about what you understand. You were saying that Canada has been the easiest country uh, and the fastest for Afghan refugees to go. What is holding this up now? What kinds of security clearances are these uh, uh, Afghan parliamentarians, former parliamentarians, required now to submit to? I wish I knew. <laughs> We've been asking. It's not just for Canada. It's for, uh, for the U.S. as well. 
Uh, with, uh, for Canada, we had 80% living who had applications to Canada. The 20% are still under security screening, which we are not aware of uh, what's happening. This is, uh, uh, but for everyone else, it's the same. We have lots of cases who are highly high. Uh, the people we're hosting, they are parliamentarians, doctors, ministers, judges, uh, human rights activists, women activists. And all these people are well known and had uh, strong, str strong uh, links with either the American government or with the foreign allies. And their CV and history is clear. And we see how many applications um, are processed and at some stage they're stuck. We uh, just before receiving the visa, it gets sent back to their country, to the country uh, for additional reviewing or for additional papers. So there's a lot of delays happening, well, a lot of uh, frustration because nothing is clear. Juman Abouaksa will continue to follow this story, project manager at the Greek refugee project Elpida Home, in from Greece to lobby Biden administration officials to accept Afghan women parliamentarians and their families and others who've been languishing in Greece for the last year and a half. And Farzana Kochai, Afghan women's rights activist who served in the Afghan parliament, speaking to us from Winnipeg, Canada. Next up, in a victory for Greenpeace and free speech— a slap suit, $100 million, brought by a Canada logging company um, that threatened the future of Greenpeace, has been settled. Stay with us. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We end today's show looking at a major legal victory for Greenpeace and free speech. The giant Canadian logging company Resolute Forest Products had sued Greenpeace in the United States and Canada after the group exposed the company's irresponsible practices. A California judge recently dismissed a seven-year, $100 million lawsuit against Greenpeace USA that threatened the group's existence. The logging company had filed a slap suit against Greenpeace. SLAP, S-L-A-P-P, stands for Strategic Lawsuits Against Public Participation. Corporations have been increasingly filing slap lawsuits against activists in an attempt to silence critics. Last year, the group Earthrights International released a report documenting how fossil fuel companies have filed 93 slap lawsuits over the past decade. For more, we're joined by Deepa Padmanabha, Deputy General Counsel for Greenpeace USA. We don't have that much time, Deepa, but if you can lay out for us what the slap suit has meant and what this victory is all about. 
Good morning, Amy. It's it's great to be here, and it's really great to be here in this moment to talk about a victory, a, a victory not only for Greenpeace, but, but for the movement. And what this lawsuit attempted to do was to silence our advocacy work and send a chilling effect to all advocacy organizations, activists, and, and anyone who dares speak truth to power that corporations will engage in these abusive legal tactics in an attempt to silence us to shut us down. And what I think is particularly important for viewers and listeners to know is that it means we're doing something right. These are desperate attempts to silence the work we're doing because the movement we're doing on the ground, the work that we're doing to draw attention to abusive corporate behavior that threatens our planet and our communities, this work is actually successful. And what corporations have to do to continue business as usual is dig into their toolbox and file abusive lawsuits that are actually not intended to win on the merits, but that are intended to split apart our movement. What this victory does is send a message to corporations that your attempts to silence us will not only be successful in the courtroom, but they won't be successful in the movement, because what this lawsuit has done, it has brought us together. It has brought groups that historically haven't worked together um, to really send a message to these corporations that we are going to come together and your attempts to silence us will actually only make us louder and embolden our campaigns. Well, Deepa, could you explain the, the, the details of this lawsuit and whether you were surprised, in fact, and how common it is that the judge ruled in your favor? Yeah, so this lawsuit um, was brought by one of Canada's largest logging companies, and it really was about uh, trying to intimidate us from speaking out about this corporation's unsustainable forestry practices. And um, as you mentioned, this case was filed back in 2017, and what was most 2016. And what was most disturbing about this lawsuit was that the company was alleging claims under the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO. So these were laws that were designed to go after the mafia for organized crime. So what Resolute was alleging was that Greenpeace and its campaign to protect the Boreal Forest and to draw attention to the company's unsustainable forestry practices, that this campaign constituted organized crime. And the thing about these lawsuits is they're actually much more common than we know. Fortunately, Greenpeace has the, the, the resources to bring attention to this, to engage in the legal battle. But most slap suits are actually brought against everyday people who are trying to protect, for example, their access to clean drinking water. So when this suit was filed, we recognized that it was a slap suit. We recognized the nature of it. And we knew that we had to fight this lawsuit head on because most of the people who face this type of legal intimidation, they don't have their resources to fight. So the mere filing of a lawsuit of this magnitude often has the intended impact of silencing. So we took on this fight, not just for Greenpeace, but for everyone who dares speak truth to power. And we knew we had to win this both in the courtroom and for the movement. One important thing to note is that while we do celebrate this victory, our battle is far from over. We face another massive lawsuit filed by Energy Transfer, the operators of the Dakota Access Pipeline, who allege that Greenpeace orchestrated the entire indigenous-led movement at Standing Rock. Very similar allegations brought originally by the same law firm, and we know that this attempt to bring RICO, although it was also dismissed in the energy transfer case, the attempts at 
destroying movements, at uh, destroying our ability to resist, to exercise our First Amendment rights to free speech, to protest, to assembly. They're very much under threat. And this lawsuit, which is set to go to trial in July of 24, is, is another real existential threat that the movement should be paying attention to. Um, one other thing that's, that's interesting to note is that while Energy Transfer alleges that Greenpeace is a criminal enterprise, it is actually the energy transfer subsidiaries that have been criminally convicted of environmental crimes um, in August of last year. So there is a bit of irony to what they're alleging. Deepa Pabanaba, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Deputy General Counsel for Greenpeace USA. A judge has thrown out the $100 million slap suit uh, that the Canadian logging company waged against uh, Greenpeace USA. That does it for our show. A very happy birthday to Dennis Moynihan, Democracy Now! produced with Mike Burke, Renee Felstein, Augusta, Messiah Rhodes, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warnoff, Trina Nadura, Sam Alcock, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen. Honey Masood and Sanji Lopez, our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh.